Okay, and, and anyone who wants to say the prayer can definitely say the prayer of of um so if you want to say that by all means please do okay let's get started good afternoon good afternoon good afternoon ladies and gentlemen all right i'm going to mute you all not because i don't want you to speak but because i just don't want you to speak right about now i will open it up later for class for questions i want to thank all of you for coming on on this beautiful beautiful summer day um there's so much we could be doing right now kayaking and swimming and catching, um, I don't know, single-tooth bass or whatever, whatever the loudmouth bass or whatever you like to catch or whatever you like to do on a beautiful summer day. But you're here with me and I appreciate it. I also want to thank the amazing staff over at Show Bethany Hood and Partners Detroit for setting this up and making this happen. I also want to thank the amazing folk over at TorahAnyTime.com. It's an app, it's a website, and it's got many, many hours of phenomenal Jewish content that you can fill your uh, medulla oblongata with. You can fill your cranium with. You can fill your brain matter with, and they've got it all. I also want to mention this is available on, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, and Stitcher under the name Burnham on the Parsha. Okay, so this week's Parsha is Parshas Akev, the Parsha of, um, that is the third Parsha in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I want to skip a little bit. I'm going to skip to the end first. You're like, it's not really the end if you didn't start there. If you're starting there, it's probably the beginning. But it's the end of my remarks. But it's something I want to point out that's a very important point. And I think it's it's it's, brought, it's talked about in this week's Torah portion. And it's an important part, part uh, for us to talk about. Okay. Okay. Uh, actually, I'm going to run quickly and get a flimish. Hold on a second. Okay, here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. Chapter 12, Paragid Bays, Pasuk, Chaf and Chaf Aleph. Okay, here we go. In Parshas Akev. What does the Torah say there? What does the Torah say there, you're wondering? Well, wonder no longer because I will read it to you. When Hashem, the Lord your God, will expand your borders, Kashir Lach, as He spoke to you, Ba'amarta Ochla Basar, and you will say, I want to eat some meat. Basar, because your heart will desire to eat meat. So Basar. Go ahead to your heart's content, eat meat. Um if the place that Hashem will desire to put his tent there will be far from you, when you live in the desert, everyone lived within a pretty close proximity to the temple. Anytime you wanted to eat meat, you can make it be part of a sacrifice. But once you live in Israel, there are people who live in the northern parts of Israel. It takes 12 days to walk to the temple. You're not going to take 12 days to get a, a pastrami sandwich, right? That's not going to happen. It's to die for. The pastrami over there is to die for. It's to die for, but it's definitely not to walk even two hours for. All the people who say they would die for a piece of pastrami are not walking an hour for a piece of pastrami. They'll stand in line for an hour often for a piece of pastrami, especially if it's cool. Like, obviously, there's like these new... Restaurants that have one eat different times, like a restaurant become the hip restaurant. People were waiting two hours outside to get the cronuts from this bakery, or you know, the, the cronuts were like a fad, the croissant donuts. It's like a just basically basically like a donut with more fat and more butter and more sugar. You know, oh wow, let's wait online for four hours to get these cronuts. But 
And people will wait outline, outside online for a lot of meat, but people generally will not run an hour or two to get meat. But anyway, the bottom line is in, in those days, people lived 12 days away from the temple. So you were not taking a 12 day road trip to get a pastrami sandwich. So what should you do? Again, in the temple times, you could always just walk a few you know, minutes and you'd hit the tabernacle and you could bring an offering and you could use the meat from the offering as your pastrami sandwich. However, Let's say you live in the northern Galilee and you live a 12-day walk away. So what are you going to do? And the place that Hashem decided to put his name there will be too far for you to reach. You won't be able to make it into an offering. And you shall slaughter from your cattle and your sheep that Hashem has given you. As I commanded you. And you can eat in your gates, you can eat in your cities, you can eat wherever you are, all over the land of Israel. Basically, go ahead, enjoy a good piece of flesh, a good piece of meat. Now, the main thing I want to point out is it, just a Rashi. When I say just a Rashi, I mean, Rashi was the greatest of the great. Rashi, who lived from the year 1040 to 1105, right? I always remember that because I was recessed when I was a kid. 1040 to 11.05. That's why I always remember when Rashi was born and when he passed away. So Rashi, who lived in, in mostly in France, learned in yeshiva in, in Germany, but mostly lived in France in, in the 11th century, primarily. And he's the greatest commentator on the Torah. I mean, he's, he's the, the, the first, the most prolific commentator on the Torah, on the Gemara. He's amazing. But what I'm trying to say is what I'm about to share with you is not something that was only developed recently that some great rabbi came up and he asked a question of the contradiction from this statement in the Talmud to that statement in the Talmud. This is Rashi giving us over the simple explanation on the Torah, and it's based on the Gemara, okay? So it's based on the Gemara in Chulin, in Tractate Chulin, which actually deals with the laws of slaughtering, kosher, all the laws of, of kosher slaughtering. So it says like this, well, how does the Torah open up? The Torah doesn't just say, if you want to eat meat, and you're too far away from the temple, then you shall slaughter it. That's not what it says. It starts off with when Hashem, your God, will expand your boundaries as he spoke to you, and then you will say, I want to eat meat. What's that all about? God, is, the Torah is not a poetic piece of literature, right? You know, like Charles Dickens was being paid by the words. You guys know that? You want to know why Charles Dickens wrote with so many words? Because he was getting paid by the word. That's why when you read Oliver Twist, Oliver Twist could be a, you know, a, a 15 page book, but instead it's spread out over many, many, many hundreds of pages because he was getting paid by the word. The Torah is not getting paid by the word. The, the, the Torah, when Hashem wrote the Torah, he was not getting paid by the word. And because of that, God does not use a language that's just unnecessarily flowery or beautiful. God uses very specific language. So what is the language? It says, when God will expand your borders, when God will expand your borders. Why does it just say, when you have meat and you want to eat it and you're too far from the temple, you slaughter it. So Rashi tells us, let's read it inside. When Hashem will expand your borders, Linda Torah Derech Eretz, the Torah is teaching you Derech Eretz, the way of the land, i.e. proper etiquette for life. Right, the Torah is amazing. The Torah has everything in it. The Torah hafochba, hafochba, the kulaba. Flip over it, flip over it. There's everything. Flip around. Anything you need to figure out where it is, 
Just look around. You flip enough pages. Here we go. Boom, boom. Where's that? Over here. No, go this way. Go this way. Look around. You'll find everything in the Torah, everything in the Torah, including etiquette. So now the Torah is teaching you proper etiquette. And we'll see it's actually financial etiquette. Limda Torah Derek Heretz, the Torah is teaching you the way of the land. That you should only want to eat meat when you have great wealth and, and an expansive hand. So when the Torah is talking about when Hashem will expand your boundaries, it's talking about what does that mean when Hashem expands your boundaries? If you live back in the day, let's just remember 2,000 years ago, 90% of people were involved in agriculture, which is just a mind-blowing statistic. Let me say that again. 2,000 years ago, 90% of people were involved in agriculture, which is just a mind-blowing number. Let me say it again. 2,000 years. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's true. 2,000 years ago, 90% of people were involved in agriculture, right? So if I was looking at this, at this Zoom right now, I would say the majority of you are, were either farmers Retired farmers, I mean, but that's not the case. In America, it's about 3%. In America, about 3% of people today are involved in agriculture, which, by the way, means that 87% of humanity would have been out of a job based on the same fears that everyone always has. Whenever we introduce a new technology, oh, people are going to run out of jobs. But look, 87% less people today, percentage-wise, in humanity is involved in agriculture. But yet there's plenty of jobs. As a matter of fact, there's way more jobs in America right now than people who want to work. So the bottom line is, is the Torah is saying this, when it says when Hashem will expand your boundaries, in the olden days, wealth was primarily in the form of, of real estate. Today, it's not that far off. But I mean, today you could also own stocks or Bitcoin or anything else. But, there's, but back then, especially, wealth was primarily, if 90% of the world was involved in agriculture, those who owned a large amount of, of land, those were the wealthy people, the wealthy landowners. So Hashem is saying, you just deciding you want to eat meat. Now, let's also remember another thing. Meat was pretty expensive back in the day, right? People didn't have, forget, 3% provide all our meat, says Flo. No, no, not just all of our meat. 3% provide all your meat, all your dairy, all your corn, all your wheat. Yeah, because today we have machines. There's, I actually watched a, a sped up video of this. I watched a sped up video of the world, the Guinness world record for harvesting wheat. <laughs> if you wonder what the rabbi does in his spare time, he watches videos of the Guinness world records harvesting of wheat. How much wheat is the Guinness world record? How many tons of wheat do you think the Guinness world record for harvesting wheat is in an eight hour period? If anybody has any decides they wanna put a, put a stab at it, please feel free to throw a number there into the chat box. How fast, what do you think is the record? How many tons of wheat do you think a person was able to harvest with a single combine harvester in eight hours? Okay, now I'm not gonna keep your suspense too long, but first of all, today they have these, it's called a combine harvester. It was, it was invented many, many years ago already. I'm trying to remember who, was, who, who invented the combine, but the combine, and first of all, it, it reaps, all the malachos of Shabbos, all the forbidden categories of labor on Shabbos. When you, on Shabbos, you're not allowed to harvest, right? You're not allowed to do kotzer. You're not allowed to remove the living thing from its ground, right? So the, the combine harvester does that. And then Hiram Moore, Eli Combine, <laughs> that's Eli Whitney. <laughs> Jeffrey Dell, Eli Combine, you're awesome. Anyway, 
Okay, there we go. Hiram Moore. Flo's got the right answer. Okay. So uh, many years ago, you'd have people going onto the field. And the first thing is they would harvest. And they would spend the entire day in the fields, harvesting, 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 just cutting the wheat from the ground. And then they would put into massive um, piles. And then the next step was they would take those piles and they put them on a threshing floor. The threshing floor is where you would have an animal or human being stomping all over it to separate the, the wheat, the actual shaft, the, the, the stalk, from the wheat. And then you would have some, that's called dush in the malachos of Shabbos, in the forbidden categories of, of, of labor on Shabbos. And then you'd have something called winnowing. Winnowing was where they would throw that all that stuff up from the threshing floor into the wind, and the wind would carry away the shaft because the shaft, the stalks were very, very light, and it would make the heavier grains of wheat fall back onto the floor, and then you'd sweep it up. Now today, a combine harvester does all those things together at once. As the combine harvester goes through the field, it rips or cuts, more like, it's more like, more like it rips the wheat from the ground, and then it smashes it up, and it separates, and it smashes it, smashes it to separate the wheat from the shaft. It blows the shaft out. Interestingly enough, it actually blows the shaft back out onto the field to be used as fertilizer. And then it has a like a nozzle and it just pours like a, a beautiful shower of the kernels of the wheat just coming down into a truck. And on, on these fields, it's, it's, amazing, it's amazing to watch. You have these truck drivers and they want they line up one behind the other. And the combine actually is able to contain a little bit of wheat on its own. So what it does is you have the, the, the combine harvester is going, it's harvesting, and you have a truck going next to it, and all the wheat is coming in a, just like a beautiful, just a stream, a steady stream of wheat coming right out of the harvester into the back of the truck, the flat, the, the, the big dump truck. And then when it's full, it just moves out of the way, and the next truck climbs right back in, and the, 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 the uh, flow of the wheat keeps on going. And that's how we have bread for a dollar nineteen of you know a loaf. Who am I kidding? Definitely not not kosher bread at a dollar nineteen a loaf. That's for sure. Maybe wonder bread, because I don't think wonder bread is made with, with wheat. You prove to me that wonder bread is made with wheat. And don't tell me because it's on the ingredients. I don't believe that stuff. Wonder bread is just weird stuff. It's magical. It never ever goes bad. There's something wrong. There's something incredibly unwondrous about, about wonder bread. But the kosher rye bread that you get in the store for 350, the reason why you get that is because people are doing all that work for you. Now, does anybody want to guess? Nobody wanted to guess. I'll tell you how many uh, tons of wheat is in the Guinness World Records. Five tons, says John. Is that what you said? Five tons? Nowhere near 50, 500. Well, you're still off. It was like 798 tons. Okay, it was in the 790s, 792, 798. It was seven, I think it was like 798. 798 tons of wheat in one eight hour shift. Can you think about how many people it would take to do that back in the day? To harvest 800 tons of wheat, right? Which is like 16 million pounds of wheat. Can you imagine how many people would have taken to do this? And then they would have to put into piles and then they would have to thresh it. And then they'd have to separate. They have to winnow it. They'd have to separate the stalks from the kernels. And that's being done by one man sitting in a, in a, in a harvester. And he's got a couple of dudes helping him out to collect the kernels 
in their dump trucks full of kernels that it's filling with. So you have two trucks, you know, because one truck gets filled up, the other truck goes back, dumps it off, comes back and gets in line behind the first truck. Two trucks and one harvester, three men are able to harvest 800 tons of wheat in eight hours. So that's why only 3% of people are doing all the work today that used to be 90% of society, okay? So anyway, getting back to where we started, the way you had wealth in the olden times often was through land. And again, today people become very wealthy through real estate as well. Baruch Hashem, it's an incredible way for people to make and retain wealth. However, back in the day, it was certainly the case. So Hashem is saying, if you want to eat meat, the Torah is teaching you proper financial etiquette. The Torah is telling you the way of the land. The Torah is telling you the appropriate way to be. Do not want to eat meat. Meat was a luxury, even back then. Today, meat is more expensive than chicken. But again, today, they're, they're processing these animals on feedlots by the thousands. You know what I'm saying? So like the price of meat and everything has gone down. So, but, but back in the day, meat was definitely way more expensive than chicken or fish. And the Torah is saying, you should not expect to eat meat unless you've got the wealth, unless you've got the money. Don't even have a taiva. Don't even have a desire to eat meat unless you've got the wealth. And why is this such an important class for today? Why do I want to bring this up? Because I feel like today we live in times of incredible affluence, which is a great bracha. It's an incredible, we live in, 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 in times that are so blessed. Number one, the amount of comfort that we all have, everybody who I'm looking at on your Zoom screens and everybody who's listening to this on their whatever, whatever device you're listening to, the high, the insanely high percentage of us that have air conditioning and heating, right? And, 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 and pantries full of food and refrigerators full of food. We have incredible, incredible blessing. But the Torah is teaching you, don't go for luxuries unless Hashem has given you an expansive property. Meaning, back then, eating meat was considered a luxury. Today, it's still more expensive than chicken. And one shouldn't, maybe for many health reasons, they should be eating meat every night for dinner anyway. But for financial reasons, many people can't afford, cannot afford to eat meat every single night for dinner. And guess what? That should be okay. You should not want to eat meat if you can't afford it. You should not want to wear designer clothing unless you can afford it. Now, there's a whole nother point about designer clothing. When you wear designer clothing that has the labels on the outside, which just screams to everybody, I'm incredibly um, insecure. And I need everybody to know that I'm a value because I show you how much I paid for certain things, right? So that's, of course, what our community is, unfortunately, unfortunately, we're caught up. We live amongst the nations of the world that are very into this thing, and, and we Jews get caught up in it. So we get caught up in this desire to show off the labels of our clothing, to say, look, I bought something that's very, very, very expensive. Look at me. I'm very rich. You should think that I'm cool. You should think that I'm awesome because I can afford Ferragamo shoes, and I can afford a Ferragamo belt, and I can whatever whatever it is, whatever insanities we're doing today. So besides for the fact, by the way, that that's, that's just wrong because the Torah, there's, it's very interesting. The Torah doesn't say, you should be careful not to make other people lie. Of course, there's a concept of you should not try to put a stumbling block before a blind person. But the Torah is not very big into saying you got to make sure people don't lie. You got to make sure people don't get angry. The Torah says this about one area. It says you should make sure other people are not jealous of you. Again, the Torah says you should make sure people are not jealous of you. 
Now, it's very difficult when, you know, when you have a, a face as good looking as this one over here, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's difficult to not make people jealous of me, I, but I try, you know what I'm saying? Um, no, but <laughs> obviously it does not mean that a person try to make themselves ugly, but our displays, our conspicuous displays of wealth are incredibly unhealthy for our society. And it creates a desire amongst people who cannot afford it, right? Now, there's 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 many different levels of being able. Let's say let's say let's let's take let's take I don't know let's take Ferragamo shoes. Okay, Ferragamo shoes are about between I know you can find them on sale and you get them over here. You get them in Nordstrom racks once a year. They have a thing half off. They cost let's say between two fifty and five hundred. Okay, obviously there are there are ones that cost more than that too, but let's assume that that's what most people are paying. Now you might have two hundred and fifty dollars in your pocket that theoretically you can go to the store and buy a pair of Ferragamo shoes. But it does not mean that God has expanded your borders to the point that you should be buying Ferragamo shoes. And this, this is two separate levels of conversation. There's the level of conversation to those who actually have incredible wealth. And Hashem has blessed them with incredible wealth. And to them, we beg and we say, please don't be a chazer. Don't be a pig by showing your wealth off with such open displays of, of wealth that make other people feel less than and make other people feel like they need to be there. Please don't do that. Chazal, tell us. Again, there's one area that you are required. You're not required to make people not lie. You're not required to make people not get angry. If they get angry, that's their problem. But it does tell us in Chazal multiple times that we are supposed to work as hard as we can to make sure people are not jealous through our actions. That's the whole idea of an Ayin Hara. So if you have enormous wealth, we beg you, please be sensible about it and don't do things that are going to make other people feel less than. But what about if you don't have the money? So many people don't have the money, but they feel the pressure because everybody else is doing it. Hashem is telling you, if Hashem has given you expensive, expensive borders, then you can go and eat meat during the week. By the way, Yamtiv, everybody had a requirement to eat meat. There was a Torah requirement to go to the base of English and bring offerings. But that was only on Yamtiv. Simchas Yamtiv is a mitzvah. Simchas Yamtiv, the Gemara says, Ain simcha the way that you have simcha properly is by drinking meat, drinking wine and eating meat. But for the rest of the year, maybe not. But today, often people end up spending money they just don't have. Or they spend every money that they get in their pocket, but they're not putting away for their future properly. They're not doing the proper ishtadlus in terms of putting away for their future. And they're bowing to the pressure of people around them to look like them, to dress like them, to wear like them, even though they don't have the money. And it's so hard. And I, I get it. I get it totally. I'm not trying to ever, God forbid, there's not a judgment of anybody who does anything that I'm descri describing. Right? What I'm just saying is, when people, Hashem is telling you, don't spend the money you don't have. Now, of course, it's not even talking about don't spend money on credit cards when you have no money to back it up. That's for sure the case. But I'm talking about even if you have, if you have a couple shekels in your pocket, don't go and buy something expensive with it. Put it away. Learn the beauty of saving. Learn the beauty of putting away for your future, which is the responsible thing to do. You're going to have to marry off kids one day. And if your kids are married off, you're going to want to help them marry off their kids one day. And you're going to have to be retired one day. And hopefully you'll live, you know, today we can retire at 65. 
Back in the day, a person retired at 65, the average, when they opened up Social Security, the average lifespan was, you know, I don't know, 67, 69. So you retired at 65 and you were dead by 69. Today, Baruch Hashem, the lifespan is just much, 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 the, the average lifespan has gone up. This past year, unfortunately, the, the lifespan in America went down because of COVID and because of drug overdoses. Um, but the reality is that the lifespan, Baruch Hashem, today, so many people are living healthy until 95, 100. You, you got to take care of yourself. No, I'm, I'm going to buy myself a, a pair of Ferragamo shoes. You put away that 450 now, right? You put away that 450 now. If you know what it could be by the time you retire, you're a 28 year old kid and you just want a pair of Ferragamo shoes. You put that 450 away now. By the time you retire at 65, right? That 450 could be five, ten thousand dollars So the Torah is saying, the Torah is saying, it's an amazing thing. The Torah is saying, listen, don't indulge in luxuries unless God has really expanded your borders. Don't spend money you don't have. And again, if you do have it, don't make other people feel the pressure to spend it too. Anyway, but that's a a longer conversation for a different time. But that's really, I, I think our, our community really needs to work on this. I feel like our community is unfortunately often, um, we spend too quickly. We spend money we have. We don't learn to, to appreciate the joy and the beauty of putting away money. Giving away charity for sure is great. That's also great. But charity starts at home. And if you're not taking care of yourself and you're not taking care of your future and you're not budgeting responsibly and you don't have money properly put away for what you need and you haven't sat down with a financial consultant to see what are you going to need to be able to retire with dignity. If you haven't done these kind of things, the Torah is saying to you, don't go buy luxuries until Hashem has expanded your territories tremendously. So that's, I kind of went out of order. Now let's go back into the right order. Okay. One other important thing, by the way, about those psukim. The Torah there says that when it comes to, let me just read one more thing. It says, so you live far away from the base of Megdash, and you're not going to be able to make it to the base of Megdash. So what should you do? It says, It says, you shall, you shall slaughter from your cattle and from your sheep that Hashem has given to you. Like I commanded you. Like I commanded you. Hmm, I don't recall. We've been learning all the parshas together. You and I, it's been a pleasure learning with you. Do you remember where God commanded us how to slaughter animals? Do you remember that? No, let me let me let me look back. Let me flip backwards. Oh no, I'm going. No, the no book of Numbers. No book of Leviticus. No such thing. Exodus. No Genesis. No, you uh, God, you, you you didn't command us. What does that mean? It says you shall slaughter as I commanded you. The sages tell us this is one of the very most prominent proofs of the oral law in the written law. Meaning, in Judaism, we believe that there's two Torahs. There's the Torah Shabbat Peh and the Torah Shabbat the written Torah and the oral Torah. Now, we'll get to in a moment why it's so important to have two different forms of Torah. But we believe that the majority of the Torah, the vast majority of the Torah, is the oral Torah that was not written down. Kind of like you have an iceberg. So on the top of the iceberg, you have a little bit, but beneath it, 
there's way, way more of the iceberg is beneath the water than it is above the water. We all know this, right? We've seen the pictures of like what an iceberg looks like below and above, right? So the same thing with the Torah. We have the written law, the written Torah, the Torah Shevach Sav, that's written down. It makes up with the five books of Moses. If you want to go to Tanakh, you got the Nevi'im and the Ksuvim, right? So there's the 11 books of the Nevi'im, the nine books of the Ksuvim, right? And the eight books of the Ksuvim, right? Yeah. That is all we've got in the written law. Now, what do we have in the, in the oral law? We have bookcases filled. Bookcases and bookcases and bookcases. Thousands of books. Now, of course, they're not oral anymore. They're written down. And there's a famous story about when it became written down. We know the history of that. But the bottom line is the Torah was very much given with an intention that it should be oral and written. The change in the days of Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Yehuda the prince, who realized that if we kept keeping it as an oral tradition, we would lose it as we got dispersed out throughout the Gullus. And now we live in a world also where I, I can't remember phone numbers of anybody besides I think my wife and like one of my brothers. I don't know anyone's phone number because I use a phone. I don't have phone numbers on my phone. It's all on my phone. So we've definitely lost our ability to remember things in a major, major way. So Rabbi Huda saw that people were going to lose their ability to remember things. So he started writing down the oral law. But the Torah originally was supposed to be an oral law and a written law. And the reason for that is because Hashem wanted the experience of learning Torah to be dynamic and alive and vibrant, like we're doing right now. We're interacting. I can see you if you got your camera on. I can, I can talk to you. You can hear me. You can chat questions to me, right? After the class, I'll open up the mics and everyone can talk and ask questions. That's the way the Torah was intended to be. So it should be a living experience from teacher to student and from student to teacher. There's so much value in those live interactions between a student and a teacher, where a student ends up asking a question that the rabbi never thought of before, and maybe comes up with a whole new explanation. This happens to me all the time. People ask me questions that I've never heard before, which is amazing, because you think by now almost all the questions have been asked. But no, there's infinite depth to the Torah. There's infinite facets to the Torah. And you have a question on the Torah that I probably never heard before. And when you ask me that question, I can think of a new answer that I never thought of before, because I never had the question before. But now there's more Torah, and Torah becomes more robust and more beautiful. And by you having me teach it to you in person, you can ask a question. You can make sure you get it right. I can make sure to check for, for understanding. So the Torah was meant to be a living discussion, not a bunch of dusty books on a corner, which is why Hashem said, I'm going to give you the written law, but it's going to have a fraction. And then you're going to discuss it. And you're going to have much more law that it's outside of the book than inside the book. Ah, how do we know it exists? How do we know there's such a thing as the oral law? There are a lot of different hints to it in the Torah, and this is one of the most prominent ones. Hashem says, and you shall slaughter your animals as I commanded you. But yet it's not anywhere in the five books of Moses where God commands us the laws of Shechita. And the laws of, of slaughtering are pretty intense. There's an entire tractate dealing with the laws of preparing meat, basically. So the bottom line is, this is another hint in the Torah where the Torah is saying to you, wink, wink, there is an oral law that comes along with this. And I'm telling you, you shall eat meat, you shall slaughter meat as I commanded you. Where did I command you? In the accompanying oral law that was given with the Torah. The 90% of the Torah that was actually not written down, but was given over word to mouth, word to mouth, orally transmitted from generation to generation for thousands of years. Okay, now I already made a bracha, by the way, so... Now we get to the main show.
This week's Torah portion starts off with the words Akev. And the language is like this. This is the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. Devarim, Zion, Parag Zion, Sukkim, Yudbez through Tesvav. Vahaya, Akev, Tishma'un, Esamishpatima, And it will be when you will hearken to these statutes, Ushmartem, Vasisim, Osam. And you will keep them, and you will perform them. And Hashem, the Lord your God, will keep for you the covenant and the kindness that He swore to your forefathers. And He will love you. And He will bless you. And He will make you multiply. And He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your soil. Your grain, your wine, your oil, the offspring of your cattle, the ashtaros tzonecha, and the choice of your flocks, on the, on the land that Hashem swore to give to your forefathers that he will give to you. You will be most blessed from all the people. There will not be a barren female among you or among your livestock. And Hashem will not remove from you all the illnesses and all the evil the diseases of Egypt that you knew, and He will not set them upon you, but He will lay them upon your enemies. Okay, that is the verses. Now, the sages point out that over here it says, The word Ekev, which translates is, and it will be because you heed the, the ordinances or when you heed the ordinances. The word Ekev is not commonly found in the Torah to describe the word when. But yet it is over here. Why is that? So the sages tell us that the reason why they use that, that language is to teach you that we're talking about the mitzvos that a person tramples with their heel. The word akev can mean when or because of, but it also can mean heel. The heel of your shoe, the, the heel of your foot is called your akev. Yaakov, our great forefather, Jacob, was called Yaakov because he came out holding on to the heel of Esau. So his name Yaakov comes from the word heel, akev. The sages tell us that when the when it says that we'll be Akev Tishma'un, it's referring to us keeping the mitzvos that people normally trample over with their heels. So what are some examples of mitzvos that people normally trample over with their heels? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Anybody want to put something in the, in the chat? Feel free to put it there. Let's read it over here. The Medrash Tanchuma says it's referring to keeping the simple mitzvahs that a person uh, stomps over with their heel. Okay, what is okay? So, what are mitzvahs that people stomp over with their heel? Number one, prayer. Right, prayer. Often people, either, even if they do the prayer, they don't often do it right. Right, meaning often they'll do the prayer, but they'll do it in such a way that it's not, they're not serious about it. They're not taking it seriously, okay? There are, um, there are many other mitzvahs. I'll give you another example. 
being Mikaba Lashanhara. That's right. People often think, ah, oh, no big deal. I'll just talk a little bit, a little bit of smack about this person, a little bit of bad. It's, it's not a big deal, right? It's not like I'm stealing, right? Mind you, stealing is in many ways a lot less um, problematic than speaking Lashanhara, right? You can destroy people's entire lives by speaking bad about them. You know, if you if you do some petty thievery, you steal a couple shekels out of the, you steal some 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 I don't know some food out of the makola or whatever it is, you steal I don't know, uh, you steal a Ferragamo tie out of the Ferragamo store. You're not going to kill anybody, but you can use lashon hara and you can kill people literally, like destroy people's entire lives. Um, that was my mom, correct? Um, so um, there are what are other mitzvahs that people. Here's another one, serving God with joy. Okay, whatever, I, I serve God, I got it done, right? Didn't I get it down? I, I, I gotta serve God with joy, whatever. Um, treating, greeting people. Having mikabah is called ha'adam b'sever panam yafos. Greeting people with a pleasant smile, right? Yeah, it's not, it's overrated, big deal. I gotta smile at everybody all the time. It's weird, I feel like a creep, you know? So there are a lot of things that we treat as insignificant. We treat as unimportant. And because of that, we tread over it with our heels. But Hashem says, you know when you get the real blessing in your life? It's when you treat the little things like the big things. You can judge a person not by how he treats the biggest man in the room, but by how he treats the littlest man in the room. Uh, who even knows who the littlest man in the world is, or in the, in the room is? Only God knows that. But we all know there are certain people who in society have more prestige, more honor. You want to understand somebody? Look at how he treats the smallest person in the room. You know, I, I tell people when they're dating, look at how the person you're dating treats the waiters and waitresses. Look at how the person you're dating treats the person behind the coat check. If you go through a toll, look at how they treat the toll person, the toll collector, right? So, and, and, I'm, and my mother is quite correct. There are no little things. So every mitzvah is huge, but that's, I think, a really important indicator Often we want to score the right points. So we want to get the big ones, but we don't realize the big ones, God commands us on everything. And God is the, is the impetus behind all the mitzvahs. And because of that, every mitzvah is equally weighted. If I am sitting at home, okay, and I get two calls, all right? One is from my buddy who says, hey, lady, can you, um, can you go? I, I want to watch the game, but I, I don't want to get out of bed. I'm already sitting in my can you go pick up a, a six pack for me, you know, and just bring it over to my house. And then I got a call from like my boss or the leader of the community or whatever it is asking me if I can do something. Right. So there's a hierarchy, right? There's normally a hierarchy based on who's, who's asking of you. And by the way, if it's actually my closest friend, I owe my closest friend a lot too, because he's done a lot for me. He's been there a lot for me. I'm not discounting him, but the bottom line is every, there's a hierarchy of who you're going to listen to first. I don't know if you know this, Jeff Bezos, who's the richest man in the world, right? Who, I don't know why people are giving a hard time that he went to space and they're like, oh, we need to tax all the rich because they went to space. Like, dude, he just did all your work for you. He did so much development work on, 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 on putting a spaceship into the orbit that NASA now does not have to do, right? And if he wants to use his money, he can blow it for anything. I'm not saying Amazon is innocent. I think Amazon does a lot of wrong things, but the fact that wealthy people have money should not be the reason why we should be taxing them. That being aside, Jeff Bezos has a thing where you can send an email to him. I believe his address is Bezos at Amazon.com, okay? You can send an email to him. He will get emails from people sometimes and he'll forward them to somebody in his company with a single letter or character 
will forward them an email with just a question mark. Now, if you work for Amazon and you get an email from Jeff Bezos with a question mark, you know what you do? You drop everything and you get right to it and you make sure you get them a very thoughtful and well-researched response within 24 hours. That is part of being in the Amazon upper ups. You get that question mark email from Jeff Bezos. You, you drop everything. You can be on vacation with your fam family in Florida. It doesn't make a difference. And that, now again, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying that's the proper corporate culture, but that is what Bezos does, okay? Now, the crazy thing about the mitzvahs, they all come from Hashem. It's not like there's a hierarchy over here, right? It's, 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 not, it's not like there's a hierarchy. There's no hierarchy. Hashem sends us all the mitzvahs. And Hashem didn't say, this one take more seriously or that one take more seriously. And often the one that's easier for you is harder for someone else and vice versa. Some people struggle mightily with curbing their anger, right? So many people, for them not to get angry, it is a daily battle and one that they're frequently losing, frequently. And this is their battle in life. Their battle in life is to not get angry. There's other things they struggle with too, but their biggest battle in life is to not get angry. And there are other people, it's just not a challenge for them. It's really just not a challenge. Once in, 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 in a year, there'll be something that will set him off enough that he wants to get very angry. Maybe once every two months. But these are just chilled out people. That's their nature. They're just super chilled people. And there's another person who's a miser. He just can't give charity. There are so many people, by the way, it's amazing. There are so many people who have serious means, so much money, they just can't part with it. They just can't. And, and, and if you don't have that problem, you cannot understand them. You simply cannot understand them. You can't judge them because you don't understand them. You're, you're not them. You, if you get $100, you're happy to give 10 away. This guy's worth $100 million. He can't give $10 away, right? Again, you have, you get $100, you're ready to give away 10. You give your meister, you give your tithe. You made 100, you give away $10. No problem, you're happy about it. This guy has $100 million and he can't give $10 away, right? We don't understand it. It's not, your, it's not your challenge, Baruch Hashem. We all have our challenges. But there's no hierarchy. There's no, this one's bigger, this one's better, this one's worse. They're all equal mitzvahs from Hashem. And Hashem amazingly made a beautifully diverse world in which different people are going to struggle with different things. We all struggle with stinginess. People who are poor would not be able to stay alive. Baruch Hashem, Hashem made some of us generous, some of us stingy. Those who are made stingy by Hashem need to work on it. That's why he sent you down in this world, to work on your stinginess. And the people who are generous, that's not why Hashem sent them down here. Hashem sent them down here maybe to work on their anger. And maybe the guy the guy is not stingy and not angry. Maybe he's here to work on his typos, on his, on his lust. And maybe the guy doesn't have that either. He's here to work on his jealousy and so on and so forth. So Hashem really gives us each curated, tailor-made, bespoke challenges. And therefore, I may find something to be unimportant, trivial. That's probably a sign that it's not unimportant and trivial in my life, right? There are bonus loans specifically, if I don't find davening inspiring and meaningful, and I just walk all over davening. Yeah, I'm there, I say it, but I don't care. I'm not listening, I'm not thinking, I have no idea what I'm saying. I'm just treading over it all day. 
It's probably because prayer is really important to me. So God made that a challenge for me. So the important thing to remember is that you get your stripes in this world by the little things that you do, not by the big things that you do. I mean, again, big things too, but that's not how you, that's not how you become big. You become big by every day exercising those little muscles. Eventually, one day you'll be called upon and you'll be really strong because you exercise those little muscles again and again and again and again and again and again. And you put in all that effort. But ultimately, you are judged by how you do the little things. The mitzvahs that a person tramples over with their heel of their feet. I want to just tell you a story. Well, before we get to the story, there's something called the butterfly effect, right? What's what's the butterfly effect? So there's a there was a scientist who wrote a paper in 1972. His name was Edward Lorenz. He was a MIT meteorologist, and he wrote out a paper called "Predictability: Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas?" You like that butterfly in Brazil? Tornado in Texas? Yeah, I noticed. I'm sure you did too. Okay, good. So that was the question. Does the flap of the flittering butterfly's uh, wings in Brazil set up for a tornado in Texas? And the basic idea was that sometimes even one butterfly flapping its wings here causes an eddy in the in the in the in the uh, wind, and then that eddy ends up spinning into another one colliding with another one, making some sort of storm, which brings down the temperatures, which ends up, it, it, he goes through a whole process. If you'd like to read the paper, it's very easy to find. Just, just put in the Google the words, the, the butterfly effect. But again, it was written in 1972. Now, by the way, how, how did he get to this? Because he himself was writing a paper on something and he had done the data, he had done the, crunched the numbers a bunch of times. And now they were showing up as totally the wrong numbers on like a, some kind of weather model. So like, what's going on over here? I, I've done this multiple times, and now suddenly I'm getting a wildly different weather pattern than I thought. And he ended up looking, and he realized that when he was doing a, a second set of computations, instead of writing the full number, which was 0.506127, he just rounded it up or rounded down to 0.506, right? So he left out 0.000127, which is basically 127 thousandths of a second, okay? 127 thousandths of a second. And what ended up happening? The total model was different. And he realized that such tiny, tiny little minute things could end up having such a massive effect. So let's tell a story. I've said this story before, but it's a story that, that bears repeating. There was a teacher who taught in a school, art school, taught high school art for many, many years, sorry, middle school. One year, he's in his office. There's a knock at the door. He says, come in. Standing in the doorway is a tall, beautiful, confident, radiant woman wearing a sharp business suit. And she says, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, how are you? He's like, I'm doing fine. How, how are you? She's like, do you remember me? And he's been teaching there for 35 years. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remind me. Remember, remember what's your name again? She's like, you know, I'm, I'm Gabriel, Gabriel McDaniels, whatever. And it's like, oh yeah, Gabby, how you doing? What's going on? And she's like, I'm doing great. I'm doing so well. And I, I want you to know that I'm doing so well, largely because of you. He's like, me? 
what, what are you talking about? I think I taught you art was it seventh grade? Was, she's like, yeah, you taught me art in seventh grade. And then she goes on to explain that her mother and her mother and father got divorced when she was a young kid. Her father drifted away. Her mother had a string of bad dudes in the house. And at one point when she was 13 years old in middle school, her mother had a really, really bad boyfriend who was abusive to both her mother and to her in every which way. And essentially she decided she was gonna commit suicide. Her parents were away. They were on a vacation. They used to go on vacation, but they would call the house. She could never go to any friend's house. You know, abuse is mostly about controlling others, right? All forms of abuse is about controlling other people, right? So um, her parents would never let her see other people, go to other friends, anything like that. But even when they would go on vacation, they would just take the two of them on vacation. They didn't want to pay for it. They didn't want this little kid towing around with them. They would just leave her there by herself, 13, 12, 13, 11-year-old girl. But if school got out at 2.30, they would call the house at 2.35, and she better be there at 2.35. Or when they got back from vacation, she would get a real beating. So she decided one day that they were gone. She decided the next day I'm committing suicide after school. I'm going to come home at 2.35. They're going to call. I'll pick up the phone. I'll say hello to them. And then she already had prepared the car with the carbon monoxide from the tailpipe going into the car. She had it all prepared. She says to this teacher, that day I went to school and I had art. And you were the teacher. And you gave us a few moments to just freestyle draw, just draw whatever you want. And you walked around the room. And you stop by me and you're like, hey, are you okay? Everything okay? Because I probably was not okay. I was probably fidgeting. I was probably sweaty. Probably didn't look good at all. And you stopped and you, you came, put your arm around me. And you said, hey, what's going on? How you doing, Gabby? Everything okay? And I was like, yeah, everything's okay. But you knew everything wasn't okay. So you just spent a minute and you stayed there. You made a couple jokes and you said, listen, Gabby, if you ever need anything, my door is always open. Just come and talk. And I'm walking home from school that day and I'm thinking, this teacher, Mr. Smith, is so nice to me and he doesn't even know me. I'm sure if people got to know me, they would be nice to me too. The reason why I'm going through so much misery is not because I'm in the wrong world, it's because I'm in the wrong house. I'm around the wrong people. I came home. I tore up my suicide note. I wrote a running away from home note. I ran away. They didn't even bother to pursue me. I bumped around from foster home to foster home. Eventually, I made my way into school. I graduated top of my class. I got into Harvard Business School, and I'm an executive at a Fortune 500 company. It's all because of you. The little things that we trample over with the bottom of our foot. Yeah, being nice, smiling at people, saying hello to them. It's, it's, it's overrated. Just look down at your phone. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's not important. No, it's incredibly important. The little things matter so much on a massive scale. The little things can a flap of a butterfly's nut. Think about this, by the way. This guy was nice to this girl for like a minute, okay? If she didn't come in, he never would have known about it. But think about this. This girl is now an executive at a Fortune 500 company. She's probably making millions of dollars. What's she doing with her money? I don't know. Maybe she's buying Ferragamo shoes. She probably didn't have them as a kid. And maybe she just needs to get it out of her system. I don't know. But I'll tell you what she's probably doing with some of her money or a lot of her money is using it to support shelters for battered women. She's probably actually volunteering for some of them. She's probably going down there and mentoring women and sharing her story with them, telling them that they, you have a chance too. Let me tell you my story. I ran away at 13, but it's never too late to go and seize your life. You can imagine her getting up in front of 
a room full of people who unfortunately their self-confidence has been so beaten down and she gets up there in front of them and she's shining and she's confident and she inspires them to assert themselves. She inspires them to take back their lives, their lives. Think about, and then think about this. How many, let's say she herself, herself, she, first of all, she funds all kinds of shelters that affect, you know, let's say with her charity money, let's say, she affects every year a thousand victims of domestic violence. But with her own personal interaction, she maybe affects another 60 every year, 40 every year. And she does this for 30 years, okay? So she herself personally changes the lives of 13, 1,200 women. And then through her money, changes the lives of millions of women. And it all started because one was not enough to see a girl who looked out of sorts and to spend a little bit of time making her feel comfortable. The flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Absolutely. Now, in the world of physics, maybe yeah, maybe no. But I'll tell you what, in the world of personal relationships, 100%. If you will listen to the mitzvahs that people just trample over, it's not important. If you will notice the people that people trample over and think they're not important. Then Hashem says, I will bless you. I will love you. I will make you great because you chose to make me great. You chose to make my mitzvahs great. You chose to make my children great. You chose to take the little things that everybody else looked at as little and unimportant and to make them amplified. I will take you and I will amplify you. I will love you. I will shower attention on you. And I will multiply you. And I will make you great because you cared about the little things. So my dear friends, let's just recap our lessons. Lesson number one, the incredible importance of not spending outside of our means. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us all financial situations and those financial situations often fluctuate throughout our lives. But the ability to remember that we should only be seeking out luxuries when Hashem has expanded our boundaries, and we've got incredible wealth. And even then, we have to be so careful to do it in a way that we're not offending other people, and we're not making other people jealous, and we're not making other people feel less than because they can't afford to do what you're doing. Number one. Number two, the importance of the, the Torah being a, a Torah that is both Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat the written law and the oral law, and why the oral law is so important. So the learning of Torah should be a living, breathing experience like we experience together every week when we learn together. It's so important that Torah not be something you just print off the internet. It's not enough. Obviously, it's great. Listen to classes on the internet. By all means, print out the great Torah, by all means. But also make sure that you're experiencing Torah in a face-to-face -face or Zoom-to-Zoom -Zoom experience and learning with people that you can ask questions of and talk to and interact with. That's where the beauty of the Torah gets amplified because each one of us has what to add. But if I'm just reading an email that I printed out, I don't have that ability to do that. Then again, it's not to say you shouldn't print out emails. By all means, print out emails and read them at your Shabbos table or you read them on your own time. But don't let that be a substitute for living Torah which is why Hashem so deeply wanted there to be an oral law, which again was hinted to in this week's parsha when Hashem says, you shall slaughter as I commanded you, even though there's no other record of the commandment. It's clearly in the oral law. 
And lastly, the incredible, incredible, incredible importance of noticing the little things, of focusing on the little things, of giving import to the little things. And the more we focus on the little things, and the little people, and the things that other people just walk all over, the more we make those things great, the more Hashem says, I will love you. It's a great line. Hashem says, I will love you for it. And I will love you. And I will bless you. And I will make you great. So may Hashem give us the, the insight and the sensitivity and the courage and the strength and the fortitude to make all the little things great. And then Hashem will make us great and love us tremendously. Thank you so much. And now I'll stop the recording.